There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Spark London. We tell true stories, we tell them live, and we tell them all across London. And my name's Dave, and I host the Hackney branch of Spark. And today's episode is going to be a very different episode. The person who makes our podcast generally, Matt Hill, is currently very busy. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to sort of commandeer the podcast for one week, and make something that kind of represents the feel of an open mic. I host an open mic at the Hackney Attic on the second Monday of every month. Today's episode is a collection of stories that were told at one of those nights. The theme was open heart. A few of them have already been out on our podcast. So regular listeners will have heard a couple of them before. There's been a few stories that I had to leave out for time. But I think the selection that I'm giving you gives you a real sense of the variety that you can get at a Spark London open mic. In between the stories, I've put some songs from various music projects that I've been involved in over the years. So that kind of gives us some contemplation time, hopefully, between stories. So the first storyteller you'll hear is me. I generally tell the first story at the Spark Hackney open mic. Because I like to demonstrate that, hey, anyone can do it. Next, you'll hear Grenier. And after that, you'll hear my dad, Peter. He's telling a kind of different version of the same story that I told to begin with. So you hear different perspectives on that story. Next up, you have Sahand, who was a storyteller visiting from Amsterdam. And his story is amazing. Then next you have Spark regular Patricia. After that you've got Daniel, Miranda, Ethne and Rob. I hope you enjoy what we're doing today. It's something a little bit different. It's much longer. So get yourself a cup of tea or lean back and close your eyes on the train and let this take you away from the commute or send you to sleep because at Spark London... What we're really about is connecting people through stories. And so we're really happy to be able to connect you to these stories now. So when I was six years old, I was sharing a bed with my father. Uh, we were in Cornwall. It was a family holiday. And 
I woke up in the morning and he wasn't there beside me. And I didn't know where he was and I was really, really scared about where he might be. I've realised since then that if, he, if everything had turned out all right, I would have forgotten this, this moment. This would have just been a forgotten moment. But because I was right and something was wrong, uh, it, it has become very significant in my life. So I, I got out of bed and I went into the next room and my dad was in our family friend's bed, uh, sitting up, looking wrong, you know, not, not, not looking his normal self. And it was explained to me that he'd had a heart attack. Uh, and that was, that was how I found out. Now, m- when I was born, my dad was 58 years old. He was a, 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 an older father. Uh, but when I was six, I, I suddenly realized what that actually meant. And he was okay. He, he was a minor heart attack, whatever that means. And scoot forward to when I'm 15. And I'm told that my dad is going into hospital to have a triple heart bypass. And uh, this was an intense piece of information to hear as a as a as a 15 year old boy uh who had pretty much forgotten about the first heart attack forgotten that that his life might be in danger and so my sister came down for this uh event and we went to the hospital and we said goodbye to my my dad in the hospital who was sort of uh, get, get, they were prepping him, I guess, or getting ready to prep him. And we, we got into the bus uh, and my sister took out this hip flask and uh, had a, a swig. And then she said to me, do you want some? And this was another moment where things changed for me because I was like, hang on. Now I'm old enough that people are like offering me alcohol. <laughs> this is pretty cool. And, but, so we went home and the next morning I woke up and my dad was having a heart bypass and I didn't know what to do with myself. I, I didn't, I couldn't think, I, I didn't really know what was going on really. And the doorbell rang and I went downstairs to open it and there at the front door was a really tall, like six foot guy, big fat guy with like cock eyes and a short, very deep voiced guy. Uh, these were my friends. They weren't just uh, random people. Uh, this is my, my friend Owen and my friend Steve. And uh, I didn't know that they knew that my dad was having a heart bypass. And I didn't know that they were the kind of friends that would do this for me. And, 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 and again, uh, in that moment, something changed. I realized these were good friends, not just friends that you have a laugh with, but friends that gave a fuck about you, you know? And they took me out to the... Uh, art gallery. It's in Cardiff where I lived at the time. Uh, they took me to the art gallery there, which was just a load of like old guys in wigs. Uh, so we're, we're sort of walking around this art gallery looking at these, these old guys in wigs and like Steve and Owen, they're not the kind of guys that go to art galleries. Like these days, Steve's a builder. Uh, and like, I'm not saying builders don't go to art galleries, but he, he doesn't. Uh, and, uh, and they're, they're from a very working class part of Cardiff called Ely. And, uh, it was, strange to me that they'd taken me to this art gallery that wasn't wasn't on their radar it wasn't even on my radar i didn't go to art galleries at that time and if i just if i ever went if i go to art galleries i'm not going to look at old men in wigs but somehow uh 
everything just felt right. That I was there with my friends and I didn't have to think about my dad in the hospital too much. And I knew that I was loved by them. And I knew that things were going to be okay somehow. And then I left them and I went to Pizza Express to meet my, my sister who was taking me out for, for lunch. And again, we got really, really drunk and uh, talked about our different... Uh, my, I talked about my girlfriend. She talked about her boyfriend. Like, there's like 20 years between us, yeah? So this was a kind of intense kind of moment where I'm like, I'm being an adult, I'm being an adult, and nobody's noticing. Um, and my dad was okay. And that day, though, when he went in to have his heart kind of operated on, his chest opened up. And actually, when they got in there, they did a quadruple bypass just for fun, you know. Uh, That day when my dad's chest was opened, my heart was kind of open too because I suddenly learned that my friends were a different kind of people. We were closer in different kinds of ways than I'd ever known and that my sister and me had a kind of bond as equals rather than as a child and an adult. Thanks very much. I am hearing cars in rain I am sucking my arms again There's nothing to read and nothing to eat There's no way that I am going to sleep I am hearing that drunk again Singing that old song the same A human way of song about this the theme is open heart open heart so when I thought think about that I think of trying I am the queen of trying maybe and um, I should reveal I'm sort of a former school project superstar um as a growing up in primary school there was no I was the competition there was no if I was entering, whether it was a baking competition, a, a project competition, if I was entering it, you probably wouldn't even bother. I was, that was me. I was the superstar. I, calligraphy, I even won a PE award. Um, <laughs> even that sort of surprised me. I don't know how I got away with that. But I took it really seriously because I really wanted to put myself out there. I really wanted to try. And uh, that's scary, putting yourself out there. It's really, it's really hard. And as you get older, it sometimes gets harder because it's easier to, to put yourself out there when you've nothing to lose. But then as you get older, um, things become more complicated. And I remember the key thing probably when I was a teenager and um, there's this boy I was madly in love with called Declan O'Donoghue and uh, I was absolutely crazy about him. It was easy to understand why a 15-year-old girl would love him because he had seen Titanic seven times <laughs> and he could do 
long division in his head. He was pretty much the dream boat, the dream guy. And I, I, I loved him so much, I became almost associated with him because I went to an all-girls school. So I became known as the girl who was in love with Declan O'Donoghue. That was just who I was. And, uh, but of course, I would never like, I wasn't like some hussy. Like I would never like ask him out or ring him up. No, I just would stalk him. And this was even before Facebook <laughs> made that socially acceptable. Um, but I was in love with him. I was crazy about him in the way that a 15-year-old girl can be. And then one day, um, my telephone rang in my house. Remember those days? And I answered it. And it was this person claiming to be Declan O'Donoghue. And honest, this shows you what my brain was like. I, uh, my first instinct was, this is one of my friends playing a prank. So he said, would you like to go to the cinema on Saturday? And I went, uh, this isn't Declan O'Donoghue. And I hung up. Of course, I found out about a month later that it was Declan O'Donoghue. <laughs> and all these time later, even now when I think about it, I just think, oh. Because I just think of the life that we could have had together. <laughs> you know, it's so much in common. We both love Titanic. I'm terrible at sums, but that would be the thing we were, had different from each other. He could do sums in his head. I can't do sums. So uh, that would be the, the frisson between us. Um, but then I think maybe that, because it's, it's scary, that was hard to do in even like, even just like taking the risk that it was him, that it wasn't one of my friends playing a prank. And there were so many things later on that I was able to do that seemed much scarier. Like um, I, I decided, I went to a, on a clown course in Italy by accident, like literally by accident. I saw this sign, I was doing these drama classes and I saw a sign saying comedy acting in Italy. And I thought, oh, that must be like learning to be like Charlie Chaplin in Italy for a month. For, I was actually for three months. Why wouldn't that be fun? I flew all the way over to Italy, arrived there, discovered it wasn't comedy acting. It was Commedia dell'arte, which I don't know if any of you know is very different. I thought it would be three months of just like skipping and clicking my heels. Instead, it was three months of what is essentially like Benny Hill, but in Italian. Like not funny in the slightest, but it was too late. I was there. And we had to do like tango dancing, which as like an Irish country girl was not exactly my forte. It was hideous. It was one of the most painful things ever. And then we had to do sort of like sketches. And rather than risk, like actually doing this new form of, of comedy acting that I didn't really know, I didn't really understand because it was in Italian. And um, I just, because I realized nobody else in the course really knew anything about Irish or British comedy. So I just used to do like fast show sketches or um, what other ones I did a lot of Blackadder sketches a lot of Father Ted they didn't they hadn't seen any of these TV programs so this whole class of Spanish and Italian and some American students all thought I was some sort of comedy genius <laughs> I was scared I was scared I didn't want to embarrass myself and then off the back of that, I was like, oh, I've lived in Italy. What will I do next? I thought, well, I want to move to a hot country again because I thought this is my, this is the, my only thinking. I just thought, well, I want to live somewhere where fruit is cheap and maybe I drink more water. So I thought I'll move to Madrid. That was my only reasoning. And again, that kind of sounds like that's scary, but it's not scary. It's just feckless more than anything else. And... Um, I kind of didn't really know what I was doing because I'd gone from this like former, you know, primary school superstar to just like working in an Irish pub.
Um, so I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I was trying to be all like bohemian and cool, which actually involved just sleeping on a lot of park benches. No, not, not I wasn't homeless. I just thought, oh my God, I'm like Henry Miller. Don't do that. <laughs> People just steal your bags. People just steal your bags. And I just thought of all the things that I regretted because I thought, oh, I'm living this life. Like, oh, I've no regrets. Like, seizing the day. But I did have regrets. Why didn't I just say, yes, Declan O'Donoghue, I will go to the cinema with you. Because when I was in Spain, um, I, was, um, I was staying in this monastery and um, there was a, they discovered this mass grave from the Franco period. And this was a mass grave of um, communists who had been shot by Franco soldiers. And even like even today, how it's run so deep, even the, the archaeologists who were digging the, the bodies up, um, they were being shunned by the townspeople because they were like, that's the past, that's the past. Um, but we were helping the archaeologists. And one day we got up really early and we helped them with the dig. And we were, it's incredible, we were digging up the bodies, like we were digging up this past of all these people on the wrong side of history who tried, who tried and, and failed. They'd failed. And, and one day when we were there, um, a granddaughter of one of the people buried there brought her, her child along just to witness what had happened. And I just felt so proud to be part of that because even if you do fail you do put your heart out there and it all goes completely wrong I mean there's something that's what history is you know that's maybe what makes us all human so that's it that's the end. I know your light is on somewhere I think of it suddenly I'm are the rain and I am the street and the light I can't describe it I bought you chocolate in the rain I soaked myself to the bottom of my Some of this story may be familiar to you, um, but uh, it's about hearts, so I had to think of a story about hearts. And um, I must say, my heart was perfectly all right until I was in my mid-60s, except for the fact that as an open heart, it was probably broken every month from the time I was nine till the time I was 70. Um <laughs> In fact, it was even broken earlier than that. There was a young, blonde-haired girl in the infants that I still remember. Uh, anyway, uh, it's about hearts, isn't it? And uh, when I was in my mid-60s, um, things did happen to it. I was taking my two sons, um, uh, who were then about six and ten, and my granddaughter, who was about seven, 
uh, down to see uh, my ex-wife in her cottage in in Cornwall, and um, they were. We were. I was taking him on the train, and we were sitting in the restaurant car, which you could do. The next, there was a sort of car next door to the restroom car, which our American friends would probably call a club car, uh, where you could drink, and in those days you could actually smoke. So I was smoking and drinking, and the children were consuming whatever they'd wanted, which I thought would keep them quiet. And I got a slight pain, but I didn't think very much of that and forgot about it. Anyway, we got there that night, and um, the children went to bed, and my ex-wife went to bed, and a friend of... uh, an old friend of ours, who... uh, a woman who, who I'd known a long time ago... Uh, and who was actually a nurse, uh, uh, um, a district nurse, came down to stay, and we sat up that night together, uh, drinking whiskey and smoking, or at least I was smoking, I don't know whether she was, um, and we were talking about old days and times and things, and I said to her in the middle of it, I said, by the way, um, Sue, I... I got this odd sort of pain yesterday, but I, I don't suppose I should do anything about it. She said, well, where was it? And I said, well, I don't know, somewhere down here in the chest sort of area. Um, and she said, well, I think you should see a doctor. But I said, well, I don't really want to do that. I mean, that, that's a bit extreme. And I went to bed and... My recollection is that I actually went to bed downstairs anyway, of this pain we've been talking very, very cute, and I, I immediately thought, well, Sue, medical, and went and told her. And uh, from then on, it's all uh, like you may have heard, uh, it became a heart attack. So there I was, I, in a Cornish hospital, um, having a heart attack, which I recovered from, and... You know, apart from my heart being broken every month or so continually after that, nothing really happened again until I, some 10, 12 years later, I um, had a sharp pain, which I knew then, by then, was in fact uh, something to do with my heart. And um, there's a word for it which I can't remember. I can't remember many words. Um, uh, But but anyway, the doctor said, you've got... um, Angina, thank you, thank you. Yes, you're, you've got angina. We've got. We, you better do something about that. You better go straight into hospital. So I went into hospital, and um, I was there, and they did a few tests on me. And then the day James Robertson Justice sort of character came round, who was the the consultant with his team of white uh, his followers, his white coated followers, students, and other doctors. And they all stood at my bed, and he said, this man's um, condition is life-threatening. We've got to get him into um, surgery pretty quickly. It was, I think, on the Thursday, and he said, we'll send him down on Friday. So I was, um, I was, I said, can I go home? And he said, no, 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 you, you, you stay here and get stuff sent in. You get your, your family to send stuff in, which they did. And there were two very nice uh, young nurses who looked after me. And um, I went in to have this... I asked him, I said, what does it mean, a quadruple bypass? He said, oh, well, we just, we just um, cut down your breastbone and open your chest and take your heart out virtually and mess about with it and put it back in and, you know. So I said, oh, well, that sounds good. 
Um, and I thought, yeah, well, I should be terrified. And then I suddenly remembered that I'd had, like, I know people think of the sort of people who are at war, the Second World War, etc., because of sort of films and stories. The only ones that are told are the interesting ones. Uh, one has the impression that everybody who was in the Second World War was sort of fighting the Germans. In actual fact, like most armies in most situations, well, certainly since technology has, has, has arisen, has, has, has sort of made it necessary, um, for every sort of person who's actually in the infantry or in the tanks and actually facing immediate sort of possible death, there are vast resources of people in the Ordnance Corps and the RIMI and various things like this. And I was one of those, one of the 80% who were probably didn't see very much in the army. I was in a heavy ACAC regiment which followed uh, the British army through Africa and Italy uh, during a time when uh, air supremacy had been... Certain, uh, we had complete air supremacy, so there was really no need for ACAC guns at all. There was no, no, there were no air defence needed. But, you know, you met, you met women, Italian women and African women... <laughs> You you drank in foreign bars. You 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 know you did your whatever job you had to do, like laying the telephone lines or that sort of thing. But generally speaking, your life was pretty easy. And so when I suddenly faced this quadruple bypass and this cleaving of my chest and all that, I thought, my God, this is my chance to be sort of a hero, you know, somebody. <laughs> I'm sort of facing death, you know, and in fact I enjoyed it. Uh, The whole experience became for me a great sort of, you know, spiritual uplift. I thought at last I'm sort of level with all those comrades of mine who, because I had had a great friend who'd been in England and on D-Day he'd gone over and within two days he'd been blown out of two tanks and he came back and that was the end of his war. He was rather messed up by it. Um, So anyway... I saw this as a great challenge and uh, I went through it and I got out quicker than anybody ever had through uh, the special care unit and here I still am, amazingly. And that is my my version. I was huge in Amsterdam in the squatting scene with my Balkan gypsy band. 
Then we bought a van and we traveled to Eastern Europe and we're playing in different cities in Hungary, in Romania, in uh, Croatia. Um, we go to the north of Hungary, to Transylvania, and we have this, um, excuse my French, piece of shit crappy van that breaks down every 500 kilometers, but our bass player, he's an engineer, he can fix everything. And we play and we drink, but our violinist is also a general practitioner, so she can fix all of us, and things are going swell. I'm always the very first person to wake up because I'm the only one in the band who doesn't have a driver's license. So whenever people are driving, I can sleep and then we basically drive until it's too dark and people are too exhausted. We build up our tents and then I wake up usually to an amazing landscape. Now, we went to a place called Brijlop, which... Um, supposedly had this amazing folk music festival and we thought if we're there we're gonna have a great time and I'm the first one who's awake I walk into the village and what I see is basically this medieval village and there is no musicians there is no dancers there is no nothing there is a guy and a cow and another guy walking along with a cart and I'm this sort of like scruffy looking Middle Easterner they have no idea they're looking at me huh and uh, I, I, I don't give up. I walk in the village, and at some point I meet a guy standing in his doorway, and he's got a big red nose, and he says, hmm. And so we've been traveling in Eastern Europe long enough to realize that that is international for come on in, have a drink. It's eight in the morning, but, you know, he was being very friendly. So in some kind of international language, I try to explain to him, we're looking for a music festival, and he basically points with his hands, look, it's a village, 150 people live here. There is no festival. So I go back to the band. And by this time, these guys are waking up. And I say to them, there is nothing happening in this village. And they say, okay, well, let's grab our instruments. Let's go into the village. Let's play a few songs for the locals. And then we'll just drive on. Now, before people were surprised at one scruffy guy walking in their village. This is a village where nothing happens. Now there are seven of us. You know, some people with dreadlocks, with strange instruments. And one guy, he's 18 years old, he panics. He looks at us and he says, don't move, don't move. And he runs off and we, we don't know what to do. Sure enough, he comes back in 10 minutes and he's got the village priest. And the village priest, now he's a guy, he's about one meter 90. He's all dressed in black and he's got a big red beard. His name is Father Irenaeo. And Father Irenaeo of this medieval village, he says, what are you guys doing here? We say, we're a band. We're quite popular in the squatting scene in Amsterdam. We want to play some music for you. And he says, well, let me first show you our, uh, our church. Now, they've got a tiny church. It's a beautiful church. And we go in, and uh, suddenly this medieval priest, he takes out a laser pointer and starts to point out various icons on the walls. And it's all kind of cool, but he says some weird things like, you know, you see these images, they're kind of similar to Buddhism symbolism. You know, here you've got something that sort of reflects Sufi mythology. And okay, I don't expect to hear that in a medieval village in, in, in northern Romania. But fair enough, we explain our predicament and he says, okay. After Mass today, why don't you come to the big barn? It's uh, owned by my parents, and then you guys can give a concert there. I'll invite the rest of the village. And that's what we do. We kind of hang around. There's not much to do. We wait. The whole village, all 150, go into the church. And when the church service is over, you see all of them sort of file out. You know, there's the wee little ones. There is the grandparents and grandmothers. There's the strong farmers. And they all kind of go to the big barn of the village 
the barn that's owned by the parents of the priest. And that's where we set up and we start to play. And no one's dancing. And everyone's staring. Now we play Eastern European music. We play their music for them. And they're kind of looking at us like we're freaks. In the second song, the old lady, the mother of the priest, she gets up. She gets up off her headscarf and starts to dance. Not long after that, people are kind of looking at the priest, and the priest says, oh, go on. And then they start to dance. And it doesn't take long, and it's, it's, it's a great party, and we're having a great time. We play for half an hour, for an hour, an hour and a half. Finally, you know, the priest said, you must be tired. Now it's our turn. And he sort of snaps his fingers. Some little boys walking with a laptop. They, they hook it up to some cables. There is all these boxes in the, in the barn, music comes out. It turns into a disco. It's amazing. It's a folk music disco. But we want to know what's going on here. What's happening? Why were they so hesitant when, when, when we came to play for them? Even in a previous village, something similar had happened. There was a wedding. There was no band. We said, we'll play for you for free. They looked at us. They said, we're good Christians. We don't want music. This is weird. I come from a Muslim country. There I can understand. But here, you know, Eastern Europe, they love music. So the priest says, well, you know, you come at an odd time. We've got certain days and weeks in the year where we're not allowed to listen to music. It's our fasting period. So then I said, hold on, Mr. Priest. You mean to say that during the fasting period, you, the priest of the town, invited a heathen band from Amsterdam to play in your village. And you let people dance. And the priest said, yeah, that's what the other people told me as well. <laughs> but then I said to them, if God decided to send us a band in this period, who are we to say no? <sighs> we had an amazing time with Father Irenaeus. And even better than the adventure we had the night before was the, the breakfast we had in the morning. And the story that he told us of how he, the son of a miller, became a priest. He wasn't even supposed to be a priest. But since this is only the five-minute storytelling night, that's a story I'll tell you guys next time if you invite me. Thank you.
I'm actually, well, obviously I'm not from this country, but I also am not from the country I sound like I'm from. I'm from Transylvania, actually, uh, which isn't a country. It used to be. It's now Romania. And so my parents and I immigrated to the States when I was about six. And my dad's a doctor, but what happens when you move to the States is, and I'm not really sure about the bureaucracy of this, but your degree has an equivalent in the States. So my, my father was a practicing, I almost said attorney, doctor in Romania. And when we moved to the States, the government or whoever does this recognized his MD only, not his residency, not his specialization, not his anything. So he had to do all of that over again. So money was very tight for a long time uh, until I was 14. Money was tight. And my dad for a while had a autopsy business on the side (laughs) and um, I wanted to be a doctor until I was 18 and so this sort of nexus happened where he had an autopsy business when I still wanted to be a doctor um, when I was about 13 and 14 and he said um, one day he said well I'm going to dissect some organs today do you want to come with me? it'll be cool and I said sure um and I was actually really excited about that. It was more like, sure, yes. And my mother looked at us like we were insane. Um, and I went with him, and we we dissected a lot of things. Brains are cool, because a, a brain is like a bread. Um, if you take it out and you wash it, there wasn't any blood. But we dissected a lot of hearts. And so when you dissect a brain, it's just you open it up, and it's just sort of like marble cake. Um but a heart has chambers, and so I actually learned all of the chambers by cutting open a heart with my dad, and that was really awesome. And you learn a lot of things. For example, if you have a heart attack, um, which several people in the audience have had, apparently, um, it shows up as a, um, as a dark spot in the heart muscle. And if it's a small dark spot, it's a small heart attack. And if it's a big dark spot, that's probably why the person died. And we found, um, well, my dad was cutting and he hit something hard and made a face that was like, hmm. um, and it was a, a plastic heart valve that they'd had installed and he had, hadn't known about that from the patient history. Anyway, um, so I had all of these great bonding experiences with my dad cutting open human organs and, <laughs> and he did all of this with a very sharp knife. And every time we would go, my, my mother would say, you know, be careful, don't cut yourself. And he would wear gloves, but every once in a while, you know, he'd nick himself with a knife and it would obviously cut open the glove and he'd bleed a little. And I was totally fine with that um, because it wasn't life-threatening. And then slowly over time, my relationship to knives changed dramatically um, because... Uh, While my mother looked at my dad and I like we were crazy, it turned out she was the crazy one. And she would have all of these bizarre narcissistic breakdowns where she decided we didn't love her because, I don't know, we didn't want to go to the restaurant she wanted us to go to. And so she would express that a lot with knives um, that she would sometimes hold up to herself or hold up to my father. And so I started to be really stressed out about knives and throughout this entire experience, I had the anchor that I knew my, my father was reasonable um, and he was a sane human being. And then an odd thing happened. I decided I didn't want to be a doctor my first year of college. And I told my parents that and they flipped a shit. 
um, because they had moved to the United States for me, for my future, and they thought my future was in medicine because I could make a lot of money. You know, the standard reasons not depend on somebody else. Hopefully also marry a doctor, that'd be great. Um, and then all of a sudden that was crumbling underneath them, and my dad was upset, but my mother went ballistic. And a lot of things happened between me telling them and my mother running after me with a knife, but it sort of doesn't matter. All of a sudden, I, I just locked myself in the bathroom, um, which is a scenario I had planned out far in advance because I kind of like things had happened in my family, but they hadn't involved me and knives. But I thought, you know, should this happen? That's the only room in the house that locks and it has two doors. And I locked myself in there, sort of thinking, okay, I'm just going to sit here until things calm down. And um, then my mother was like running at one of the doors trying to break it down. And um, and then she said to my dad for him to get his tools to take the hinges off. I thought, oh, I should take action now. Um, and then I thought, Where's, where is my dad? And my dad was standing behind the other door. And and then he started talking, and he said, Patricia, come out. I said, I'm not coming out. <laughs> no. And he said, Patricia, come out. And this sort of went back and forth a few times until it became really sinister. Patricia, come out. I'm not coming out. Patricia, come out. I'm not coming out. And and then finally I, I felt you know, like I had to say something. I said, I'm not coming out. She's going to kill me. And there was a pause. And he said, so? <laughs> like, what do you mean so? She's going to kill me. And he said, you should come out and see what you've done. And... Um, then I jumped out the window and ran away. And I'm not really sure where this story is going, except to say that I guess, like, when I think about the time when I started dissecting human organs with my dad, that was a really happy time in my life. <laughs> because um, I had a really great relationship with both my parents. And then I had a really great relationship with one of my parents. And then um, my heart is close to both of them now. And and it's pretty much open to everyone else, but of course they think I'm a shriveled up shell of a human because I'm so closed up with them. And again, I don't know where the story is going, except don't run after your children with knives, please. <laughs> Done. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. from open-hearted to broken-hearted and back again. Uh, and it starts 12 years ago, uh, in the middle of India, in fact, in northern India, uh, at the biggest ever gathering of people in history, uh, called the Kumbh Mela, um, on the banks of the River Ganges, where tens of millions of pilgrims came to mix with gods and some uh, interesting naked dreadlocked men who smoked dope all day as their religion. And uh, I gravitated towards these friendly gentlemen and sat round the fire uh, for several days on end, getting stoned from dawn till dusk. And it felt fantastic. And uh, I, I, I communed with uh, the consciousness-expanding experiment of, uh, of the Kumbamela on the banks of the Ganges. And I felt at one with everybody around me, despite the fact that I was in a, a medieval swamp with people uh, defecating in open sewers where they were also cooking their food. And uh, somehow I got out of my head and my sense that I was superior or different to anybody else and, and, and became in, in, in some way part of this sea of humanity around me. And it felt so good. It felt, it felt, it felt wonderful. I went swimming in this, in, this, in this river and everything washed away. And, and I thought, this is just too good to leave here. I must take this home with me somehow. And I had this idea that I could crystallize this experience in the, the tip of my little finger and I could go to somewhere else in the world and I could touch it down on the map and I could share this love and understanding with other human beings. Uh, and at this time, I was working as a foreign correspondent and uh, I lived in Belgrade, uh, the capital of Serbia, which was once the biggest republic in Yugoslavia. And uh, this was uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, in fact, um, and... It wasn't uh, a part of the world that was very happy. For the 10 years before that, Yugoslavia had been falling apart in a series of vicious, brutal wars. Uh, and that was why a lot of people had, like me, gone there to write about it. Uh, by this time, though, they'd all gone. And uh, there was nothing that the outside world really wanted to know anymore about this unhappy part of the world, where uh, the brotherhood and unity of socialist Yugoslavia had given away to uh, bitterness, hatred and recrimination. 
And uh, where I was living in, in Serbia, I was in the heart of darkness of the whole story because Serbs were deemed to have been the, uh, the bag, bad guys of the breakup of Yugoslavia and they were the bogeymen. And uh, their country was stagnant and stuck in a rut and it was nominally supposed to have changed and become democratic and hopeful and, and different. Uh, and instead it was run by the mafia who pretended to be Democrats and got themselves elected and uh, given lots of money by Western taxpayers to call themselves the new business elite. And nobody really wanted to know about this, so I didn't have any stories to write. And I thought, hang on a minute, why don't I organise a music festival here in Belgrade on this island in the middle of the Danube, which also meets the, meets the River Sava, this confluence of two rivers, just like the Cumbamela. And best of all, there's this island right in the middle of the river there uh, called Big War Island. What better place to start a summer of love? <laughs> so... I carried on smoking more dope, and I thought, I'm going to go for it. Uh, let's raise money. We can have this, uh, this peace, love, and understanding festival here. The, the neighboring republics will start to like Serbs again, because they've got the best music festival in southeastern Europe. The young people of Western Europe will start coming here on holiday, because it's cheap, and it's sunny, and we've got a beach in the middle of a city, and it'll be fantastic. And all I've got to do is raise money and put this thing together. The problem was, of course, that Serbs were the bad guys, and nobody outside the country wanted to know. So I turned my mind to my unique competitive advantage here. I was a journalist and I had some contacts. Uh, and I was rather tired of doing my job because uh, my job at that time was working for the New York Times. And uh, this was late 2002, early 2003. Uh, and the New York Times didn't really want to hear about what happened in Serbia then, except for me to write about whether or not Serbs had realized that they were villains because they hadn't stopped their government starting wars. Uh, the New York Times was at this stage printing a lot of bogus intelligence information to facilitate the invasion of Iraq, and uh, my editor was not really au fait with the parallel that I kept trying to point out to him. Uh, so I thought, fuck my job, much better to get high all day long and run a music festival. But first I'll ask all of my former contacts to, uh, to sponsor it in the name of peace, love and understanding. I tried NATO, I tried the European Union, I tried a Nobel Prize winning Auschwitz survivor. Uh, surprisingly enough, they all said no. Uh, so I was reduced to asking the rich men of Serbia to help me out. And uh, these nice gentlemen who, uh, as I explained earlier, were the mafia, uh, kindly agreed to lend us some money, uh, which enabled us to book some bands. And uh, we put together a four-day event on Big War Island called the Echo Festival. Uh, and it took place in the summer of 2003. 150,000 people came. It was a nice thing um, until it finished. Uh, for two or three reasons, really. The first one was that I'd hoped to recreate some sort of Woodstock-like event uh, that would bring people from all over Europe flocking to the Balkans. Um, but like Woodstock, it, uh, it had petered out in uh, faux idealism uh, when everybody got wrecked and then went home again afterwards and didn't actually start a revolution. Secondly, instead of really recreating Woodstock, I'd actually managed to recreate Altamont because uh, I'd hired a bunch of former war criminals as my security and uh, 500 of them had made off with all the money. So there was no way I could pay all the people I'd convinced to come and work on the understanding they'd get paid after the event. And thirdly, uh, I'd had this wonderful idea that I was going to change the world and that it would make me a great guy and everyone would love me. And uh, instead, they all hated my guts because I couldn't pay them and I'd told them I was going to spread love, understanding and positivity. And instead, I'd made them all very, very angry. Uh, so I fled Serbia in a hurry uh, with lots of unpaid debts to the tune of 300,000 euros and uh, I holed up in a farmhouse in France and had a nervous breakdown taking lots of drugs. Uh, 
Whereupon I uh, eventually pulled myself together and tried to write a story about this event, uh, which has uh, now been published in a book called A Rough Guide to the Dark Side, which I would gladly sell you a copy of, should you like to come and talk to me afterwards, for a special half-price £5. Thank you very much. <laughs> when I met him, which I think explains the way things ended up. Um, it was Christmas, and my friend Kirsty, who's over there, and I had gone in search of kisses under the mistletoe. I was an elf, as I said, and she was a fairy, sparkly, tight, dress, wand, and she worked her godmother charm, and soon I was speaking to this boy, or I should say gentleman because uh, about six foot something with a really intense stare and an Italian charm as well as the most impressive handlebar moustache I've ever seen on a living human he was from another time and we told him as much as we were giggling our way out of the club and he said to me well I'll take you on an adventure what's your favorite period in history uh, the cowboys and Indians, I sputtered, not feeling my most imaginative at that point. So, the following Sunday, I met him on an empty Fleet Street, and he asked me if I wanted to be a cowboy or an Indian. I made my choice, and he produced a tinfoil sheriff's star, which I pinned to my coat. He'd asked me to bring along an apple. Um, that was for two hobby horses made of cardboard, which he produced from his knapsack. Uh, their, na uh, their manes were snipped to perfection. Um, this man was very, very creative. Um, in fact, uh, every date he would present me with something that he'd rustled up at home. I haven't seen such skills with papier-mâché, glitter glue and cardboard um, since Anthea Turner left Blue Peter. Um, but uh, this, this kept on happening, and every date he would turn up in some element of costume, whether it would be just tucking his socks into his trousers or a funny belt, a hat, and, and this kept on going. And another interesting thing he would do would be to leave me presents on my doorstep. So I got a, a sock full of sweets, a, a bouquet of flowers with an artichoke at the centre, 
but he would travel an hour and a, uh, and a half to, to leave this at my doorstep. And, and I found it a bit unsettling that someone would cross the whole of London, stand outside the door and not ring the doorbell. And he would never engage in any kind of serious conversation. He'd just dismiss it as oh, boring. So time went on and I, I thought, I'd probably let this one fizzle out. We're not really getting anywhere. So I hadn't seen him for a while. And on the 1st of March, I was running late for work. I flung open the door to find eight red cut-out paw prints leading the way to the top step where there was a leak embellished with glitter glue with my name on it. And Happy St. David's Day, written in Welsh. I'm, I'm Welsh. That's, that's why it was particularly you know, sentimental. Um, but as I said, I hadn't seen him for like three weeks at this point. And I thought, I'm going to have to take some direct action here. <clears throat> so I left it a day and then I sent him a text. Um, meet, me, <laughs> meet me on South Bank on Saturday. At, we're going to go for a coffee. And um, that in girl code means prepare yourself for some bad news. He didn't quite get this, and he came back, oh, I'll find something fun to do. So I thought, I'll make this really clear. No, no, keep it simple. We'll just go for a coffee, meet me on South Bank. I arrived early, which demonstrates my resolve to break things off. And as I sat there on a bench watching the river flow by, boats, gulls picking sandwiches out of bins, (laughs) I saw him arrive. He was dressed in red trousers, a khaki jacket which sipped up all the way to the hood. And the only part of his face I could see was his eyes behind the inbuilt goggles. And around his neck and and down his back trailed a green felt tail. He was dressed as a dragon. (laughs) I rang Kirsty. What do I do? Can I just, like send him a text and I don't want to see him again run away as she collapsed in laughter in a world where people have conventional relationships and boys are normal I could see him scanning the crowd for me and um, although as a Saturday on South Bank no one batted an eyelid that there was a man dressed as a mythological creature in their midst I could see in his hand he was holding a paper daffodil so I went up to him and I, we went for a walk. I, I tried to make it as gentle as possible. You know, I had a lot of fun and sorry, et cetera, et cetera. And he took it quite well. Um, he turned to me uh, and he said, do you know what? I had a feeling this might happen today. And my first thought was, oh, I'm, I'm glad my text was pretty clear then. And then I thought, and yet you still dressed as a dragon. So we continued walking for a bit. Um, We crossed the river and uh, we ended up back at the same point on Fleet Street where we'd met for our first date. And he said to me, you know, I wish you could have seen the real me in my jogging bottoms painting my bathroom on a Sunday. And uh, he he was pretty brave in many ways. I mean, he's... Dragon costume demonstrates his high-risk strategy to um, courting. But what he never got until 
that moment at least was that the biggest game, the most fun, silliest, most imaginative exploration of all is that in between two people as you're discovering that fragile magic that grows between you when you drop your guard and you open your entire being to another and to dive into that fully honestly and without hiding behind glitter or silly costumes or a massive mustache that is the biggest adventure and it's rarer than finding your own dragon I want to do a line of you to wake me up when the day is through. You fill my mind, you crumble up. I mix you with the orange juice in my cup. Day falls away, the night is on. We go out to spread our walls. I write your name on the biggest went to India to do a photography project. I love photography and I love India, but one of the main motivations for going on this was that I was really quite in love with my fellow photographer. So we devised this photography project, which was sounds kind of mad, but to do a kind of set up a portrait studio in the Lalbagh Gardens of Bangalore um, in order to document people who came into the gardens. And we we had an amazing time. I bought the most beautiful shalwara kameez, I remember, on the way there, because I really wanted to be ready for this encounter. And and we went round and we negotiated Lalbagh Gardens that we could set up this photography studio. And we went round the markets and we bought the most beautiful textiles to hang on the back as, uh, as the back. And so it was all going very well. And it was all connected with a sort of South Asian um, art project that, that, that my fellow photographer um, knew and had worked with before. But as the days went on, I realized that there was this really very beautiful Indian dancer who he was rather interested in. And as the weeks went by, I retreated further into the bushes of Lalba Gardens and didn't wear my shalwa kameez and, and was terribly upset. And being in this rather strange hotel in, in the middle of Bangalore um, with this rather large room overlooking Bangalore and, and crying quite a lot and ringing to my friends in Britain. So we, we ended badly. We had a row. And on the way back, I stopped off in Sri Lanka because the aeroplane stopped there. And I went to this really beautiful beach. You must go if it's not already been ruined, called Marissa which is a beautiful curved beach. And I stayed with this family who really had just, you know, a very simple house on the beach. 
and they looked after me incredibly when I was drinking beer down the, down the, you know, down the beach, crying. They, the man, the father would come after me at midnight and, and take me home, and and the wife would cook me these fantastic fish curries. And the little boy called Yassos, we would play drafts with and, and various games. And healing was coming after about a week. And so I came back to the UK ready to face the world again. And then a year later, I was watching the television um, and it was Boxing Day. And I looked and I saw the very place that I'd been and it was a tsunami of, of the... Of, of, of from Sri Lanka and I saw the train that used to go past the back of the house and used to keep me awake at night being overturned and hundreds of people dying and I was really sort of worried about this family who'd been giving me so much heart and, and really looked after me and I thought I must write to them I must find out what's happened so I wrote a letter to them and there was no reply and then there was no reply, and then there was no reply. And then about three months later, I got this letter. And they had saved their lives, but their house had been completely destroyed. And it was only because Yassos, the little boy, had been out playing, and he said, I've got this sound in my head, I've got this sound in my head. And because of that, they all managed to get up to the, ste- the temple at the, t- at the back, where there was some steps that went up to the temple at the back. So I collected money from friends and family and whatever, and we sent them a cheque to help them rebuild their home. And about five la- years later, I went to the Gore Literary Festival, which is a brilliant literary festival, and I thought, I need to go and see them, really. So I went after the festival and I, I walked down the beach and it had changed a bit. There was Bob Marley coming out of the you know, speakers and things and I thought, oh, this has really changed. And I walked past it and I thought, maybe I won't recognise it. And then I did recognise the house. And I walked past it and, and then I lost my nerve a bit and went away again. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Come on, you've got to go. And I, I walked up the steps and it was what, six years since we'd seen each other? And I just went, went into their yard. Uh, and the woman looked up, and she looked up at me and said my name, which was amazing, really, because it was just such a recognition. And we had the most amazing few days again. And Yassos, who was a little boy, he took me up to the temple, and he showed me where they'd gone to to be rescued. And he he told me about the way that all their furniture had been swept away and sold by other people and things like that, and he pointed it all out to me. And then we went down and we had this supper, and his mum brought out an album of photographs, and I said, God, you know, you saved that. And she said, no, she said, Jungleside, that's the other place, the photographer had still had the negatives of all their lives that they had lost. So he was able to reproduce the photograph. So they had the family album, and that was practically all that was left. And so we looked out, we had another fish supper, and we looked out, and there was really a lot of hearts being healed that night. Shut your eyes. 
Few stories about, about families and things like that, um, from the sublime to the ridiculous to the scary to the heartwarming. Um, and this is this is a story about my um, about my brother. And, and, and what happens when you get older? You know, you spend a lot of time when your children fighting. I was telling my kids off yesterday for blaming each other for something that was clearly both their faults and not what they claim each other's faults. And, you know, you know if you, certainly if you've got uh, a younger brother, especially if there's a good few years between you, you don't really get to know um, what they're like because they annoy you, right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, you, you, you grow up and, um, you know, you go to university, you get a job, you do whatever you do. And um, if you're lucky, right, you might get to know them as an adult. Right? It's not always the way because, you know, family gatherings when you get older tend to be, um, you know, Christmas, birthdays, birth, marriages, death, that sort of stuff. And those aren't great occasions for having a laugh or making friends. But I was lucky enough to uh, be, be friends with my, with my younger brother. And um, a couple of years ago, he came to live in London. Yeah, I got him a job at, where, at my company where I was working. And uh, before he moved his family down, he came to live with me up the road for three months. And we hadn't spent any time together for, I don't know, 20 years, right? But, you know, whenever we got together, because we were friends, we used to have a really good time and let our hair down. And, um, you know, this is, an av- this is a story about, uh, I suppose, what happens if, if you're lucky enough to spend some time with, you know, a brother or sister uh, when you're grown up. And you can do what you want, right? And, and, and it's weird because, you know, when you've got families, quite often you don't get to do what you want, right? You know, you, there's always someone bugging you to do something that you don't want to do. You know, you might want to read the paper, you're getting your ankles pulled, and swimming, whatever it happens to be. You know, and the idea of being able to go to the pub or smoke a joint or do whatever you want whenever you want to do it is it, foreign. Um, and, you know, he, he just had his, um, his first kid and had gone through... Uh, you know, all the sleeplessness, all the horror of not knowing when you were ever going to get to bed or when you were ever going to be able to do anything you wanted to do for yourself ever again. So this three months was like a golden time. And uh, it was Thursday night, and uh, we'd gone to the pub after work. And we rock up back at my house, you know, a few sheets to the wind, put some music on, you know, have something else to drink, have something to eat. It's midnight, right? It's Thursday night. It's a school night. Anyway, we were having a good time. And YouTube, I don't know, YouTube's probably the best invention for staying up late and getting drunk, right? Because all the things you remember from when you were younger are on YouTube, right? It's brilliant. And so there we are. You know, it's one o'clock. Oh, have you seen this? Check this out. Boom, boom, boom. Really loud. Fantastic, fantastic. Anyway, 
It's two o'clock, right? We've still got some beer. We're thinking about whiskey. And I, re- I remember, and this is a drug that won't come up very often in these, I remember that I've got some amyl nitrate in the, <laughs> in the, um, in the bathroom cabinet. And I'm like, you and you are going to stay here. You've got to hear this tune and have a hit of this. And I race upstairs. I get a little bottle of amyl nitrate and stick it under his nose and press play. And we're just, whoa! Absolutely fantastic. And we basically spend the rest of the night going, listen to this! And anyway, anyway, I eventually retire injured on Friday morning, right, at about 4.30. And Ewan's going, oh, I'm just going to stay up. I'll have another cigarette in the garden. I'll see you later. Anyway, I get up. My alarm goes off. I get up at about 8.30. And I go downstairs. All the windows are open. <laughs> All the windows are open. And it's just, it's like 50 people have had a party. <laughs> it's just the two of us. I walk, out, I walk out into the garden. And there's a guitar on the deck in the garden. There's loads of beer bottles. And the grass. There's a massive burnt patch on the grass. <laughs> there trying you know trying with the worst head you can possibly imagine to piece together what could possibly have happened after i went to bed <laughs> right and um so I, I can't i can't i'm kind of wandering around okay everything's open we've been burgled what happened did people break in and have a party who knows anyway ewan kind of pushes the living room door open and he's like oh fuck look at my hand and basically, his hand is burnt all the, way up to, all the way up to where his shirt sleeve was rolled down. What the fuck happened to you? And he goes, well, you know, you went to bed. And I went, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm sitting in the garden, and I'd lit a fag. Right? And I'm smoking a fag. And I think, you know, before I go to bed, I'll have another hit of that amyl nitrate. Right? So he lifts the amyl nitrate up. And sets himself on fire. Because he hasn't taken the cigarette out of his mouth. (laughs) Right? So, of course, his face goes up. His arm goes up. Because instead of of throwing it away, he tips it back. And it goes all over his arm. And then he drops it on the floor. So not only is his face on fire, his arm's on fire, and the ground's on fire. And he goes, you'll never guess what hassle I had putting it out. And it's just like... I can only imagine what he was like. Anyway, anyway. Um, The next problem was what he was going to tell his missus because he had to Skype every night at 7 o'clock or he was in major trouble. And this is the bit about, you know, escaping the gravitational pull of families and reconnecting with your youth and everything like that when you're in your late 30s. Anyway, we never told her what happened. I said, look, just say you got wasted and uh, spilt omelette juice on you or something or they made a dangerous sandwich at three o'clock in the morning, whatever it happened to be anyway it still it still stands out as a one of the one of my great memories of a time together with him uh and you know it was it was only uh a couple of months later after his wife had uh moved down with their son that um she phoned me up uh the morning after the last time i'd seen him and he died and he'd just gone to sleep uh, after being at our house the night before. I never woke up. Uh, and he was 39. And, you know, if you get a chance next time you see your brother or your sister, you know, 
do something that you're going to remember. Because you never know when you're not going to see them again. Anyway, I told that story at his funeral. And his uh, wife found out what happened to his arm. So thanks to all of our storytellers, Dave, that's me, Grognier, Peter, Sahand, Patricia, Daniel, Miranda, Ethne and Rob. It's the stories that make Spark London Nights so amazing to be a part of. And that is only made possible by people coming along to our nights and choosing to share their lives with our audiences. Behind me, you can hear Wet Hands, which is a song written and performed by Dan Weltman. Dan is the man who made our theme tune, and we love it, and we're really grateful to him for making it for us. This song is from his album Inside the Walls that he recorded under the name Hollow Body, and you can find that on Bandcamp. Go over there, buy it, buy this song. If you're interested in him as a composer, he's on Facebook as Dan W. Composer and at www.danielweltman.com. That's W-E-L-T-Man.com. Spark London can be found at www.sparklondon.com. Over there, it'll tell you when all of our nights are. So check out our website for more details about that. I don't just host Spark London, I also host and run a night called Stand Up Tragedy, which frequently features Spark London storytellers who I've heard who I book for that night. Stand Up Tragedy is where we aim to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. Our next night is going to be on the 12th of December at the Dog Star in Brixton. That is going to be a charity fundraiser for the amazing organisation Arts Emergency. It's going to be themed around Christmas too. We're going to be bringing you a tragic Christmas. So come along and share some tragedy with us. www.standuptragedy.co.uk And it's a podcast too. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. So check us out there. I also make a podcast called Getting Better Acquainted where I have conversations with the people I know from someone I might have once met at a party to my closest friends and family they're really fascinating conversations with people about their lives and they're as varied as people are and I really would love you to come and get better acquainted with those people with me it's on iTunes it's on SoundCloud it's on the Stitcher Smart Radio app find out more about it at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk This has been a Getting Better Acquainted production for Spark London. My name's Dave Pickering. Thank you very much. I I built my pockets up with rain up with rain I filled my pockets up with rice, up with rice.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.